especially working on plexiglass right now with screen printing. And it also does that. And I'm experimenting actually how to push that a little bit more with color on top of the plexiglass. They would create these incredible shadows. I'm really interested in, in physics and in Buddhism in my work too. And this idea of kind of shadow work, the other side of ourselves. So that was kind of an allusion to that. I'm, I'm still using all the iconography I use, which is about home and memory and rites of passage and ideas about how we create meaning and transformation. But those shadows really kind of help to push that narrative in, in that piece. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 246th episode, I'm very excited to be joined by Isadora Stowe, who spoke with me from Las Cruces, New Mexico, where she lives and works. We talk all about her work and background growing up, taking hikes, going to museums, as well as some of her teaching experience, including teaching fine art in the El Paso area, as well as to incarcerated youth. We also talk a little bit about her unique experience helping her dad pull prints and her extensive background in education, studying a wide variety of topics aside from painting and drawing. Isadora also has a undergraduate degree in cultural anthropology, Native American studies, women's studies, and we talk about how that tracks with her work. She began very interested in making massive portraits and that slowly turned into abstracted paintings dealing with landscapes and memory and how all of these things came together in a variety of different installations that incorporate new media, sound, video, and all sorts of different processes that she describes how everything kind of comes together, how she's able to play and collaborate with a variety of different curators to create these really interesting and beautiful installations and we of course talk all about them coming up i do want to note real quick that isadora was selected as one of our pro competition winners in 2020 by our juror liz Tran. so we're very excited to feature her work on studio break and of course be sure to check it out at isadorastow.com and follow her on instagram at isadora stowe as always, if you're new to Studio Break, please check out studiobreak.com. We've got a bunch of different interviews and artists up there, each of which feature their work. You can listen right in the default player or just click those hyperlinks and subscribe to the podcast. It's a great way to have something to keep your mind occupied when you're working in the studio, of course. No doubt you're on social media, so be sure to follow Studio Break and like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break and, of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. If you want to follow me, it's David Linaway on Twitter and Instagram, so be sure to say hello. All right, with those announcements out of the way, let's dive into our interview with Isadora Stowe. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Isadora Stowe. How are you doing today? Thank you. It's so great to have you on. You were one of our professional competition winners from 2020, selected by Liz Tran from Seattle, who's a friend of the podcast and a great artist. So, you know, I'm so glad that she picked out your work and, you know, it's a nice turnaround because here you are, it's the start of a new year and new things. So great to have you on. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. It's so nice of you guys to do this. <laughs> I always like to start out at the beginning and, you know, just kind of collectively researching artists and, and learning a bit about them. Are you kind of from that New Mexico, Texas area? It kind of sounds like in, in terms of where you grew up. Yeah, I'm from uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico. It's a border town. So we're right at the bottom of New Mexico, right next to Texas. So we're right next to El Paso, Texas and Juarez, Mexico. 
so I grew up here and actually right now I, I work also in El Paso. So it's only about 45 minutes away. But yeah, I grew up mostly in Las Cruces. We lived in Oaxaca, Mexico for a bit too, but mostly the Southwest area. And I think that it's kind of really influenced my work in, in many different kinds of ways being here and, and growing up in this environment, the high desert. It's, it's a very particular part of the U.S., very different, and it's greatly influenced a lot of the ways that I think I see the world. Yeah, I was going to ask a bit about that. Obviously, as I was looking at your work and, and thinking about that idea of landscape and things, it made me wonder, again, you know, the kind of experiences that you had when you were a kid. Were you somebody that was always out exploring and making stuff outside or building forts or hiking or anything like that? Or were, did you have other interests? You know, that's, that's interesting because I forget about that a lot. You know, I, I grew up in the 80s. I have three other siblings and my parents would just say, you know, go outside and then they would kind of like lock the door. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we would we were just assumed that we would just be roaming around the streets with the neighborhood kids and kind of exploring. So I was outside all the time. And in New Mexico, uh, where I'm from, is you can see for, for very far amounts of time. We have mountains, but um, you can kind of see everything. And I, I remember as a kid when we would travel and we would go different places, I would, I would feel a little uneasy, like when we would be in Michigan or places where there were so many trees and you just couldn't see because I never had to know where anything was because I could just kind of figure it out by kind of sight. <laughs> so sure. it, it's just a different way of like orientating yourself. And we have this mountain range. So we always knew which side of the, the city, you know, you were on and we have great weather. We don't, we have very mild winters and we have really intense summers where you, you can't go outside, but for the most part, you can be outside all the time. And so my family was very into hiking and, and being outside. So we were always kind of in the desert, navigating the desert, and it's a it's a pretty intense environment. Our desert, there's a lot that you have to kind of be aware of, snakes and, and all sorts of kinds of things. And there's this real quietness out here. And I think that that's really kind of permeated my senses about thinking about danger and thinking about quiet and light and space. And I, I think that that just comes out in my work. I think it's just so much a part of me because I grew up here. It kind of got into my bloodstream. Mm -hmm. That's how I, I kind of interact with even paint in a way, if that makes sense. It, I translate it in, in a lot of ways that way. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I grew up in the flat plains surrounded by homes and convenience stores and stuff like that. It wasn't really until I did all these residencies and, you know, we we're kind of briefly talking about this earlier. I was out in Wyoming doing a residency back in, I think, 2008. No, actually it started 2009. See, I'm getting that old. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just the openness and the sky and, you know, just feeling so small in this environment. I think, you know, something you were saying before our discussion became live was the idea of places influencing you and your work. And I, I can't help but agree with that. Anytime you move, anytime... Um, <laughs> even if you move studio spaces uh, across the house or something like that, or apartment or wherever, some of those small things really can totally impact you. Oh, absolutely. Like uh, all of my practice has been influenced by the physical spaces that I've been in too. Like the things that I would attempt or the things that I can attempt. Yeah. Have all been conditioned just by those physical resources too, of, of space and storage. And I mean, we're so dependent as artists, because of our spaces too, about what we can do and what we can kind of create in those spaces. So yeah, absolutely. Those have completely influenced my practice over time. And you talked a little bit about, you know, being into the outdoors, hiking and kind of experiencing landscape. Were you making things at a younger age or into high school or 
exploring art? Was that something that you did or was that something that kind of came later or? Yeah, I'm, I'm one of those annoying people who's like, <laughs> I grew up with a pen in my, or paintbrush in my <laughs> kind of person because my dad is a printmaker. He was a oh, okay. professor. And so really <laughs> when I, my entire life was all about visual expression and expressing myself that way. And when we would go on family vacations, I thought it was really normal that you went to a museum and you were just lectured on about art history. Like I just assume that's what right. everybody was doing. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a curious thing because all my siblings, two of them are doctors and one of them owns a finance company, but I became um, an yeah. artist and arts educator and I just always, you know, I, I wonder so much about that, about that upbringing. Would I have become an artist had it not been something that was just, you know, from the moment I can remember I was painting and I was seeing my dad in his studio or seeing him make things out of cardboard. I mean, like if we wanted a toy. So growing up where I did, you know, before the Internet, we were really isolated. And if you wanted anything, you really had to just make it. So I would make my own clothes and I would make my own jewelry and I would reupholster furniture. That was just kind of the lifestyle that, that we had. And so I was always thinking about art and aesthetics and, and environments. And um, my dad was really creative in that way. Like I remember he made us this incredible like stage out of just cardboard and, you know, we loved it. And I, I'm from one of the poorest counties in the, in the U S too. So I think that, that, that also kind of lends itself to art making and being creative and kind of just using whatever you have to make something out of. That was just kind of the culture I was around too. So I just always saw myself as an artist and I always saw that as a natural extension of who I was and also how I could process things. I mean, even now I feel like I don't have the language to talk about some of the things that I can talk about in my work. I just always felt like that was the way that I could communicate with the world. And that's because I think my dad, that's how he was communicating with me. He wasn't, you know, the best at talking, but we could talk in this kind of way through our work. So I've always kind of relied on that throughout my life as, as the way that I interact with the world. Did you know that you wanted to pursue that as a profession, if you will? Again, we were talking about the, you know, huge landscape of what that means for artists these days, but was that something that at an younger age then you were like, okay, I want to go to art school and get an artist studio and, you know, who knows what? <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. I, you know, I was, I was super into it and fashion design. And I remember even my dad always, you know, we were surrounded by artists always coming to our house. My parents, they met in the Peace Corps. So we always had international guests and, and people coming from all over the world who were super creative. So I just assumed, you know, that was my lineage. That was, that was what I was going to do. But I was really into fashion design because I would create my own clothing and I thought I was going to do that for a long time and I would draw all the time. But I think once I got to college, I kind of thought, oh, this is just so easy for me. Like I'm acing all my classes. I don't even have to try. Like I'm so good at this. Maybe I should do something else, you know, right. because I just thought, oh, well, you know, I was brought up this way. So what else could I be good at? You know, so I kind of explored a lot of other things. And, and I just have a lot of varied interests. I've always been a bookworm. My parents didn't have TV when we were kids. So, and they didn't really buy us toys. They weren't into to that, but they would buy us any book we wanted. So I was always encouraged to read and I was constantly reading about all different kinds of disciplines and, and things and getting interested in, in things and kind of going off on tangents, taking like six classes on something that I was interested in. <laughs> and I ended up getting like 
two minors, Native American studies, women's studies, um, and a double major in, in cultural anthropology and also um, in painting and drawing. But a pretty extensive background in studying a lot of things then. Yeah. You know, it's also kind of problematic because I would, you know, when I was in college, I would go to the biology department and listen to their lecturers and I'd just be so excited about whatever that lecturer was talking about. You know, they would have guests and I'd just go to the library and kind of dive into that for two days. I, I can just get so ensconced in things and get so interested and passionate about them and just want to learn everything about them. And then, and then I move on to the next, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and so what was that experience like in terms of your undergrad and in, in terms of art? What did you study? Did you study printmaking or was it painting or drawing or? It was actually painting. And it, it's funny because, you know, I, I had drawn most of my life. That was what I, I was really passionate about too, but I hadn't really used oil paints. I remember I used oil paints for the first time and it was like a light bulb went off. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. You can do so much more than drawing with painting Mm -hmm. and oil painting in particular. You know, it's like you can race all the things very easily. You can just change and edit. And I was so drawn to that. And then I just, you know, I fell in love with painting and it was kind of like, I didn't look back, but my dad's a printmaker. So when we were kids, we would always have to help him out in the studio. <laughs> I say that as if it was a punishment. <laughs> it kind of felt like it. he'd be like, you have to hold this plate. You have to roll that. You know, like we were always kind of being pulled in there to help with different duties. I, I know how to do printmaking. And I actually would always do printmaking kind of like on the side to work out ideas. But the painting was really what I, I went to school for. So I never, I've never gotten kind of like a um, formal education in printmaking just, just from growing up and, and doing that with my dad. Yeah, I would imagine that gives you a lot of just skills just in terms of just learning new things and being adventurous about it and realizing, especially with printmaking, there's so much stuff that you have to kind of rework that doesn't work out. So that idea of failure is probably (laughs) a great, great thing to have. And I could just never be solely a printmaker. I feel like they have the hardest job ever. Well, ceram. Well, yeah, I guess all of them. (laughs) I guess ceramics too, but... I just feel like you have to be so precise. There are so many parts of, and I mean, we can talk about it later, but I feel like printmaking, I've just kind of took printmaking and kind of made a mess of it. I've just used it in the way that I, I can use it, that I feel like is more fast and, and easier and not as precise because I just don't have the patience for the meticulous kinds of things that my dad used to do, that I would watch him do for hours. You know, he'd sit in front of us just, you know, etching for hours and hours <laughs> I just remember thinking, oh, that looks terrible. I don't want to do that. So so what kind of things were you interested in making then at the time in terms of like a subject matter? I'm especially curious too, obviously, as somebody that started out myself as really being drawn to abstraction and now I kind of make representational work. I'm always curious, you know, where that balance is for somebody that, you know, works mostly abstractly now. Was that right. something that you did at the time? or So representational. I was just really into representational work. <laughs> so funny right like the evolution um, the switch but i i was very interested in female portraiture and you know i had that minor in women's studies and i worked in the women's studies department in college in part i also worked in the gallery you know i was really upset basically that there were like five women in my art history books that i didn't see women artists that i didn't really i mean i knew them kind of peripherally through uh, my family, but I didn't see women being as successful as men in the art. And I couldn't find it in the books and I couldn't find it in the people who were visiting and and coming and giving artists lectures. 
And so I was really concerned with female portraiture and I was, you know, into cultural anthropology and I was really interested in meaning and in the male gaze and specifically how women were marginalized. So most of my work was female portraiture and it was very large. It was like, you know, 10 feet, eight feet, huge, huge canvases that of course, after undergrad, I had to just give away to every single person who would house them because I had no place to put these things. And even when I was making them, I would just ask friends, I was like, can you put this in your house? You know, so all, all that work is actually just spread out around friend groups at what I sell because I couldn't store it. It, it was it was an untenable kind of way to work, you know, with oil paint and on canvas that large. But that's what I was really interested in. And I, I was just trying so hard to talk about the female psyche and to really study the people that I was I was painting. You know, I was very into Alice Neal and Judy Chicago, and I had grown up being very influenced by Odilon Redon. My sister's actually even named after him because my dad loved him so much. <laughs> so, you know, the early Impressionists, America saw it, and things like that, I was very influenced by. But that's what I was really exploring in my undergrad work, representation mm-hmm. portraiture, <laughs> which I have nothing to do with now. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because that idea of scale is always huge, you know, when you're younger, you know, your professors are like, you know, just paint this thing gigantic. And then, yeah, where do, where do all these things wind up? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had no place. I, I don't own any of them because they were just monumental pieces. You know, I'd have to have a stepladder and stuff like that. <laughs> but they felt so over the top. You know, it, it was just such a fun thing to have your whole body, you know, kind of making these things. I, I do miss that in some ways. Well, and so what did you wind up doing afterwards? Did you know that you wanted to go and, and pursue like a, a graduate degree right away? Or did you, you know, just make work for a time or? Yeah, I did. You know, I had gotten married shortly after my undergrad and I was working. So I was teaching art to incarcerated youth. And I had previously when I was in college and in high school, I had well, a little later on after high school, but I had, I had taught a lot. I was teaching Hebrew and I was teaching Sunday school. And then in college, I was working with, they called it at-risk youth, mm-hmm. kind of alternative schools. And so I was doing a lot of programming and nonprofit programming with students and education and violence prevention. So um, after I was working with incarcerated youth, it's it's kind of a funny story. I ended up becoming an accountant randomly. It's just a, a long story with working <laughs> state of New Mexico, but I kept getting promoted. It was like bizarre. And I, eventually I was running this facility as the financial person in charge of it. And, and I was just was really unhappy. And there was um, someone coming in from criminal justice and they were doing these wonderful programs with kids. And, you know, I, I was really concerned with why these kids were coming into the system. You know, it, it's just a completely unfair system. And a lot of the kids who were being incarcerated, they a lot of the reasons why they had to stay was their family lives were so unsafe that they had to stay locked up. I mean, it's just, I could go on and on about this whole broken system, but the Dr. Lisa Baumoff and she had this violence prevention grant and she asked me to come work with her. So I did that for a while. I did a lot of violence prevention work uh, with students, with art to help kids who were kind of at risk of going into the system. So I did that for a long time. And I thought, that I wanted to go into public policy because I really wanted to make this kind of lasting change. And I always thought of art as this way to connect people and to help people really 
connect to themselves and be empowered in a lot of ways. I, I still think now it's our biggest superpower is creativity, which leads to innovation, right? Which leads to everything in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I was really interested in public policy. So I went back to school for public policy and then, you know, I took one statistics class and I was like, Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> I cannot do this. This is just antithesis of how I think in the world and how I want to be. And so I had already, I had a small child by that time and I really had wanted to go away to grad school, but we were in Las Cruces and I had just started a archeological company, a cultural resource management company with my then husband and I had a two year old, so we couldn't really leave. And so I went back to grad school at the same place I went to undergrad at New Mexico State University. And it was just an incredibly interesting experience. I think Sometimes people, you know, my students sometimes ask me, you know, is grad school worth it or should I go to grad school? And it was an incredibly excruciating, hard time for me, but mm -hmm. I also would still do it again. I think it's incredibly important for your growth just because you get to really get to work on, on your work. You're not taking these other courses. And I guess I had done that so much that it, it seemed so specific to what I was interested in. And I just got to talk about that and do that all the time and be around people who were just as interested. And I just think that was, that was an incredible part of that, of that experience. But I had a small child and I was the only one in the program with a child. And, you know, I, I never saw any artist mothers. I, I was told many times, you know, in many different ways that, you know, if you have a child, you're not really going to make it as an artist. There's a certain trajectory of how artists should be. And so I think that was just a, a really hard time for me. I was always trying to prove myself, work harder than everybody else, or just even keep up. And, and with a child, it was, it was really hard. But my work changed a lot because there was so much concentrated time in the studio. And I had had a studio practice even, you know, all the time, just even since I was little. So even after my undergrad, I was constantly making work. And so I used all that work to apply for grad school. But having that concentrated, uninterrupted time with so much scrutiny just completely transformed my practice, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about it, and especially the whole relationship with graduate school, because having having a child is, you know, obviously a life changing experience that's going to bring something different. But it's weird because there's not necessarily like a lot of time that maybe transitions between the two, but they're so different in terms of experience. And I think I agree, you know, that idea of just having more personal freedom to kind of pursue your passions and just all of the competitiveness, the fact that you're probably take much more ownership of applying to it than when you first got into undergrad. It's just such yeah. a different experience, you know, and competitive and you know, it definitely, definitely does produce some amazing things though. And I guess to kind of redirect it, to actually ask you a question, you know, how did, how did that change your work then in terms of, you know, you, you're coming back to it and you start exploring the things that, you know, you're basically deciding what you want to explore. What it taught me was I cannot work in huge portraiture. <laughs> like It's just not even an option. And we had built a studio in, in my house, but it was pretty small and when my kiddo was was a first born, I I cut up tons of my very large drawings. I, I also was you know drawing really big as well, and I had a toolbox with all my supplies in it that were dry media and these cut up paintings. And then when she would sleep, I would be in whatever room she was in, and then I would work on the coffee table or whatever it was, you know. Mm -hmm. So I was working in these kind of spurts instead of 
the long concentrated time, you know, I, I would pride myself on being in the studio overnight, you know, in undergrad and I would be in there like all the time. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I just, I couldn't do that concentrated time in that way. So I would just kind of steal time. And I think that that it completely fragmented my work and fractured it in a way that was really interesting because of what I was talking about in the work was I was really trying to, I was trying to understand meaning and I was trying to understand rites of passage and having a child and relating to the world in a different kind of way. And I've always been interested in memory and how we attribute meaning to things, right? So I started with objects and doing a lot of still life because I could get that done. I could, I could, I could focus on something, you know, for a short amount of time and then I could paint over it later. So I could work in these kind of layered fractured ways that were the only way I could work with a kid basically because then when at night then I could go back in and I could paint them over but I was using acrylic because I didn't want to have oil paint in my house sure she was always in my studio and I had to make it safe and all that good stuff yeah it transformed my materials and you know if you're a person who's really into oil painting and you switch to acrylic there's a lot of difference I feel like there's a huge amount of difference And I was very attracted to that flatness that acrylic has, you know, going back to kind of Mary Cassatt and and the Edo period of printmaking that I was really influenced by. So I love this idea of creating these psychological landscapes that were very flat and talking about a psychological space by being able to flatten out the physical, you know, the the space that you were looking at. Mm -hmm. The materials changed, uh, the way I worked completely changed, and my focus completely changed. I was really interested in the mundane on all these different moments. I think having a child really slowed me down and made me understand the world completely differently. And I was just trying to grapple with it. I was just trying to grapple with seeing everybody else it felt like at the time moving on with their lives and doing all these things and I was so kind of tied to washing clothes and you know feeding and all these kinds of things that were breaking down my day in a way that I hadn't experienced before and I was very frustrated by them too you know the labor involved with having a child is is and caring for a child especially toddlers I feel like they're just always trying to kill themselves (laughs) And you're trying to like keep them alive. You can't keep your eyes off of them. So all of that is what I was dealing with. And I was trying to express that psychologically in my work. So that's when the installations really started for me because I could only concentrate on these smaller pieces. But if I put all hundreds of pieces together, then I had something, right? Then I had this narrative. And so that's when I became really interested in installation. So I wouldn't have had I not had a child and had I not wanted to produce so much work. And I just do produce work just in general. I, I have so much work. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's how it, it transformed the way I, I moved into installation. And I think it started to become more and more important to me that people enter the psychological space before, you know, as an undergrad and the way I was brought up, we would go to museums and I would really, you know, I would, I would be staring at these paintings or this artwork and I would really be kind of entering it that way. But I was really concerned with how do you physically enter this entire space and it envelops you. I want more. I don't want people just to stare at the painting. I want to, to give them more and I want to take up more of their space And, you know, I was looking at Anne Hamilton. I was starting to look at all these artists working in ways that I hadn't really noticed before. Mm -hmm. Actually, kind of just starting really. It was, you know, 2002. Relative aesthetics and all those kinds of things were actually starting to become a thing. They they hadn't been before in my undergrad. So I was so interested in, in how do you pull in people and how do you create these spaces where you can interact in a way. And because I had been out of school for so long, 
and the kind of work that I was doing, you know, with incarcerated youth and trying to talk about creativity to people who didn't feel they were creative or didn't value art. I was really interested in how do you get people to value this experience? How do you connect with them in a way where they don't need to know the art historical record, right? They can just come into the space and, and have this feeling. And so that, that was kind of the catalyst for all the work that I've continued to do after grad school too. It's so interesting to think about when people kind of make those changes and, and how they kind of open everything up in terms of their practice. I would imagine, you know, your first dive into installation work was super exciting to be able to kind of decide how you're almost going to curate all this, this work that you're compiling and, you know, playing around with the formation and, you know, moving things around the editing process. Was there anything in particular, like maybe a first installation that was really informative or maybe one of the earlier ones? There's so many, I think, but I guess maybe I'll talk about one of them that, that kind of really struck me differently was I was applying to exhibitions and I got one in Lawrence, Kansas after I had already had a, an installation at a, the, a local museum. And that installation, you know, it was kind of the first time I was invited somewhere and nobody knew me. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was a big deal because just of my upbringing and it's a small town. And sometimes I feel like, oh, maybe people just like my work because they know me or, you know, like you kind of get suspicious, not suspicious, but I didn't know if my work was really strong or if people were just saying that. So for me, the experience of going to Lawrence, Kansas and being treated like an artist and installing my work for a week, allowing me to paint on the walls. And they had painted the walls before I got there. It was a a show with another graduate student, Jordan Trance. And what we did was we split the gallery in half. So it was his perspective and my perspective. It was called Lived Living. His was more about death and understanding life from that perspective. Mine was more about birth. And so the way that you entered the exhibition, you would see one side and then move over to the other side. It was just kind of this really interesting work, but it was so labor intensive. Like we went there for a week and we were painting on the walls 10 hours, at least a day. It opened up. And, and then it opened up and people were having this experience with it. And I just felt like, ah, yes. So, so it's working, right? Like, I didn't really think I had a barometer before for it to kind of the work to kind of work and for that, for the installation to really um, kind of translate well. So that was kind of a pivotal moment for me because I was also treated like a professional artist. And I, and I think that that kind of got me, I was like, oh yeah, I want to do that. (laughs) I want to be hosted. I want to be paid for this stuff. This is amazing. And the work was respected. And, you know, when you're putting all your time, your energy, your resources, your student loans, everything, Mm -hmm. putting everything into this thing for other people to get it. I just was so hooked by that. I just thought, oh my God, that's why you do it is you have this other relationship with this public discourse that can translate, you know, throughout not knowing someone. And so that really started me on, on this kind of quest, I guess, maybe to get my work out as far as I could and to really push each exhibition to kind of, I don't want to say chase, but like kind of continue that conversation and that way of dialogue with other people about the work. So was this something that happened like, you know, kind of following your graduate degree or is it something that happened while you're in graduate school? Well, we got in when I was in graduate school, but my friend Jordan had already moved to New York when we went. Cause I remember he flew out from New York. This is the story. I also tell my students a lot. I had applied to 75 places, 75. Oh my gosh. And I was like crying. I was like, I cannot get a show anywhere. And I had already had 
solo exhibitions, you know, in my area. So I remember Jordan came into my studio and he said, why don't we propose this as two people? And I think maybe you'll get in if we, if we do two people. And so it worked when we went there, they said, Oh, you beat out 500 other people for this idea. And so I think I was really frustrated in grad school because I wanted to get my work out there, but you know, it's so competitive and each proposal that you do, it takes a long time and they all want it specifically different. And so I think too, that that show was such a culmination of, yes, finally I got, you know, I, I got out, we got to do it. And so why can't there also be more opportunity? It was really important for me to see that, that it could happen. Well, and to see, you know, your work on your site, that's isadorastow.com. There's tons of installations. So that idea of kind of carrying that into different directions, obviously you were super successful in that. <laughs> but it's interesting to think about that too, because I would imagine that, you know, just getting some of these experiences under your belt, so to say, you know, allows you a different type of specificity when applying to something so that, you know, you can figure out what you're going to do with that space. And that's one of the things that's really interesting to me about your installations is that it seems like they really kind of try to shift from installation to installation as opposed to, you know, maybe like you're saying something that's more formulaic, you know, there's always like a different approach to it. Is there something from maybe one of those series that's on your website that you might want to talk about? Yes. And, you know, I think it also has to do with the curator, the people who believe in you and let you kind of go crazy in in their space. And that happened for me at the Juarez Contemporary Museum. Mm Mm-hmm in Juarez, Mexico. And the curator, Laura Turan, was instrumental in that. I was the first female to have a solo exhibition there. She believed in my work. Everything I said, she was like, yep, we can do that. I'll help you do it. (laughs) She was like, I will climb up to that ladder and I will help (laughs) that. She was phenomenal. Since then, she's been one of my closest friends. She let me experiment because each time, you know, you have to propose these things and they take like a year. But by the time that year rolls around, I'm like, actually, I want to push this. I want to do something different. So getting somebody to let you do that is really important. And, And she did. She had done a lot of studio visits with me and we had been talking about the work and she knew what I was trying to do. And I think I want to even say she suggested the light gels because I was like, I I was thinking I was going to buy all these colored light bulbs. I didn't understand a lot at the beginning, but of course, you know, you don't, you're just, you're trying to figure all this stuff up and and make it up as you go along. And so uh, we got these light gels and we put these light gels over the light. And that was amazing. We were up doing lights for like hours and hours. She let me paint on the wall. Usually I would have the walls painted before I got there to the spaces. This time I wanted to do it differently. I wanted to paint the the paint abstractly on the wall and then paint the imagery and then place the images on top of it and then place the light. And she let me do that. I love playing with scale. So like in the, I think the show right before that was in Kentucky and I had, it was this huge wall. It was like the longest continuous gallery wall in all Kentucky at Georgetown College. And I did these huge drawings and I had four people helping me, which was amazing. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to get all that done without it. But for this show, I think we only had, we had some volunteers, but we had people coming in and out. But because it was over the border, I would bring in people too to come help me. But it was just a little bit more complicated. But that show took me a month. Wow. Just going back and forth to Mexico and just going in there. And it was so hot in there too. Some of the air wasn't working. And And I was doing that as I was, I think I was, I can't remember because of what year it was, but I was a lecturer at the time, I think too, you know, and I, 
I was a single parent too. So it was like, it was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. Stretch pretty thin. <laughs> I know other artists, you know, who do that too. We just put everything on the line for the work. But I, um, yeah, the lights were kind of a change. And I, and I added video because I had been working on video a lot. That's what it was as well. And so I wanted the colored lights because there was also video in that show. I don't know if I have the video up on my website, but um, the video is the images that are also drawn on the wall that are also in the paintings. So it was this whole kind of encapsulated place where you walked in and you had the light and you had the video and you had the sounds. We eventually, I, I turned it off because I, I felt like it was really distracting. So I didn't really understand about sound so much then, but it was me walking through New Mexico, Texas and, and Mexico. It was like a it was talking about borders and, and how we associate things and how we relegate meaning. And so, yeah, using that light was really pivotal because I, I really felt like it pushed the experience for people that it really highlighted the work in, in different kinds of ways. And eventually I started using light sensitive paint, but I hadn't been doing that yet with the light. But the, the colored light was important because of the video for that space. The room had to be darker. So that's also why I had wanted to use the light as well. But I could light up the drawings that were on the wall with the paint that was already on the wall, but then with the colored light. So it was kind of like it pushed the images much further, I thought. So it was like a way of like transcending painting was using that light. And just to clarify, too, this is the associations yeah. exhibition. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think it's just interesting just because it changes and you know takes it away from that. I guess, more straightforward kind of, you know, bright lights kind of thing, you know, and it kind of brings you more to that. I think you describe it as almost like a psychological space or like a landscape in your statement. So, you know, I would imagine there's a lot more opportunities then to kind of change the environment that people are, you know, getting from these places as opposed to, you know, like you described really early, just like a, just looking at a painting on a wall versus seeing them, you know, trail off or like a color lead you down the path to a wall drawing or a video piece. Yeah, exactly. It felt like it, it felt like a real pivotal changing point because I was like, oh, yeah, I'm never coming back from that. <laughs> you know, once I got a taste of how much and I have synesthesia, too. So that's the other thing is the lighting for me kind of pushed it over the top visually. It, it was also kind of one of those things where I thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to be working with with this for a long time because I just liked how it really kind of pushed that conversation. And a lot of people who came, they said, are you worried that you're paintings aren't really like because of all the light and all the kinds of things that were happening. But what it made you do is it made you kind of go up to the paintings a lot closer. You had to be very close to them to look at them. And so that's a win-win for me. Sure, (laughs) sure. Not at all. (laughs) Well, and it's interesting to think about that balance too, because it sounds like then when you're in the studio, you're producing, producing, producing. And then maybe when you have these spaces to work in, there's a lot more room for play. You know, you're spending weeks or, you know, commuting back and forth over the course of a month to kind of, you know, work on something. So I would imagine there's that kind of improvisation that happens in a different way, maybe, you know, in actual spaces as opposed to that production of studio mode. Exactly. And that's what's so exciting. You know, they're all site specific and I'll usually get the like the schematics before or if I'm applying to a place and I'll just kind of imagine it. But I have to be in the physical space. And actually, the my most recent show at Colorado State University, oh, he was so wonderful. And I can't remember his name, but the curator, he he did everything I asked. I was like, can you take a video from this side, from this side? Can you measure this and this and this? Because there's so much that has to happen before you get there, you know, in terms of supplies and getting ready. But 
course, I knew once I got to that space, everything would change. So you also have to be so flexible that once you're actually physically in there, I, I kept making him kind of walk in. I said, what does it look like when you walk in and you turn to the left and you turn to the right? Because it's so important to me how people enter the space and how it all works together as this very specific installation. It'll never look like that again. I could take the same exact stuff and move it somewhere else and it, it won't look the exact same way, you know? And this is Anamnesis. Is that the show? Yeah. yeah, that show. Yeah, again, it's interesting because there's some other ones where it looks like there might be some work that's like this, but then maybe it's more in that kind of stark white space. So it's interesting to see, you know, that kind of really colorful kind of room interior kind of play with the work in, in different ways. And there's actually another piece in that one that looks like their cutouts or maybe describe that a little bit, because again, they kind of almost look like they're these glowing, you know, floral forms, but then also, you know, you use symbols of homes and planes and things like that. Yeah. So um, in that show, I started working with projection mapping. So that video all the way back then in associations that kind of kept developing. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to expand the video. So I had seen this in a show before Andy Arkley. He's a really interesting artist. And I was just floored. I was like, I want to do that. I don't know how he did it, but I want to do it. And so I talked with some friends and the electromagnetic lab at UTEP. And they were developing this kind of, you know, virtual reality kind of stuff. And he was working with projected mapping. And I got back in touch with Lauda and she helped me create this projection mapping video for my work. So basically it's the shapes that are in the video on top of mylar shapes that are pinned to the wall with colored light gels. I don't know if I'm explaining. <laughs> it's a very layered thing, but what ends up the end product, I guess is probably the more important thing, but it's these projected videos onto a surface. And then they're also kind of glowing. And then when you walk into it, your shadow kind of moves through. So you become part of that image. So it was a way to kind of push the, the iconography even further and kind of bring the viewer into it. And yeah, my next show, it's kind of pushing that concept a little bit more. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm curious too, like in terms of, you know, the practical side of it, are you playing around with this in the studio beforehand so that you can kind of see what that looks like? Cause I would imagine, you know, there's so many different layers and processes that that's got to you know, totally change, you know, that straight up approach maybe that you had earlier when you first did an installation. Exactly. Like the projection mapping, <laughs> size about that because of precision. And I remember talking with um, one of the scientists and he was like, no, you have to figure out that, you know, he was very specific about things. And I'm like, nope, I'm just going to figure this out when I get there. It's okay if it leaks over on this side. It's just so funny, the different thought patterns, the linear versus I was like, I'm just going to be flexible about it. And I would like all the mistakes that would happen. He was like, it casts this kind of shadow over on the side and we're trying to figure that out. I'm like, no, 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 leave that. That's amazing. Right, you know, right. <laughs> it's just kind of funny, but I, I did, we had to, oh God, I had to take off a whole, all my paintings off of a wall, pin them up, pin up the mylar, try to figure out how far the, the projector needed to be from it. And even then I had to bring all this back up. So when we did it, there were like five people helping me, which was fantastic because these go in with insect pins, which is also very laborious. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know why <laughs> these things to people. So just installing them is very hard. Um, but the shapes had to match what was being projected on them. And then there's all these things that you couldn't account for. The lens, 
uh, the distance, you know, just little tweaks would kind of change the whole thing. So I had to redo a lot of the mylar shapes, but I had brought tons of mylar just so I could draw them back out and do that. So there were like maybe half of them I had to redo, but <laughs> for the most part, they were they were all they were all pretty correct. There were a lot that I was really surprised that came out correct. Well, it's just such an interesting duality between the two types of working, you know, because again, like I said, you have that stuff that you can just make and make and make. And then, you know, there's only going to be so much that you can kind of plan for, you know, and I'm assuming that kind of as you're talking, I'm thinking like, okay, there's definitely things that are, you know, coming up on the fly to, to kind of shift around and, and switch around. Yeah. That idea of projected light, I think really shows up in another series or another exhibition, the uh, shadow work series, because it's really interesting the the kind of projected light and the impact that that has on creating shadows and color shadows in some of those pieces. Yeah, so that's mylar, but it's also um, plastic. There are plexiglass laser cuts that are in there too. It's very hard to see them. I still have not figured out how to photograph that correctly. It's <laughs> because of the reflection and oh my God. Sure. The glass is so hard um, and I'm working with it a lot now and I'm I'm just always... I'm real frustrated in the documentation process, but so I don't think you can see them too well in the pictures, I guess is what I'm getting out. There were also lights coming from behind them. And then they were casting these like amazing shadows because of, like you said, the, the light gels, if you move them a certain way, then you could get these like four or five shadows with them. And I'm actually working on plexiglass right now with screen printing. And it also does that. And I'm, I'm experimenting actually how to push that a little bit more with color on top of the plexiglass. But yeah, they would create these incredible shadows. I'm really interested in, in physics and in Buddhism in my work too. And this idea of kind of shadow work, the other side of ourselves. So that was kind of an allusion to that. I'm, I'm still using all the iconography I use, which is about home and memory and rites of passage and ideas about how we create meaning and transformation. But those shadows really kind of help to push that narrative in, in that piece. It's really interesting to see those threads, too, throughout the work, because you can see it, you know, actual paintings, but then also in silhouettes or black and white paintings, you know, you name it. One of the things that's really impressive is just the variety of different materials that you're using and, and strategies. You know, are there things that you're kind of experimenting with that are maybe in the early stages? Or I guess, how does that work in terms of like, if you've got, and I'm sure that maybe you have something coming up where you've got a plan because I would imagine some of them are very successful and some of them you kind of just have to like sit back on and let it kind of simmer for who knows how long to, to get it to work right. Yeah, exactly. Like um, working with sound is an avenue that I'm exploring and I'm still trying to kind of figure out how that will work with the exhibition because I, I think it's so influential to the work. So I'm not sure how to get that just right. To me, color talks, it, it has a voice. So I'm trying to figure out how I convey that I'm also working with plexiglass right now in a lot of ways, layering plexiglass together and, and working with shadows. And I'm also starting to work with cast glass because I want to have cast glass in these shapes with projection mapping video. But I have no idea how that's going to turn out. That's just <laughs> something I'm trying to I, I'm going to learn how that's going to work probably over the course of a year. It'll take at least a year. If you were to break down, like, I guess how your, you know, day to day, you know, or week to week process is like, I mean, do you have like a set of goals that you're working on or do you just kind of get obsessive about a particular material and then you like have to figure out how to make this thing, you know, speak, I guess. It's both. I think there's like the goals and the, the things that I want to work on and I have these ideas, but then I'll, I'll 
I'll go off on these tangents. I'll get really interested in something and then that'll lead to something else. I try to be really flexible and open to what the work is telling me it needs to do, um, even when I'm making the work. So I do have plans. I have like, there's a show coming up called Beacon at Western State University and I want to use light in a new kind of way. And so I'm just experimenting a lot right now with stuff that I'm doing. And then I'm also just making stuff that makes me very happy, that brings me a lot of joy that I just adore making because I know something will come out of that. Even if that's not the work that will be there, there's something there that I'm I'm trying to figure out and that's going to have its presence in that show. I just don't know how that'll work itself out, but I know it will. It always does. It always, at the last minute. <laughs> It always figures itself out. Well, and I'm I'm curious too, as like a maker, you know, you talked earlier about being able to like take these hikes and, you know, that almost being like a meditative practice. And is that also a place that kind of you pull from in terms of, you know, memory or, you know, thinking about, you know, a piece down the road or like, oh, this is going to supercharge my studio when I go back? Yes. I think I'm kind of obsessive. Every moment that I'm not doing a task for my job or something else I'm thinking about making work and I'm writing it down or I do a lot of voice memos and I love listening to artist talks, podcasts of artists. And I guess I'm kind of always thinking about the work and processing it. And I do a lot of meditation. I'm a transcendental meditator. And I feel like that also helps me kind of clear out space so that during the day I can think about my work a lot. I can kind of go through it I feel like even when I'm taking a shower, that's also when I'll get like some of my best ideas. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just always thinking about the work. It's still exciting to me, which in itself is like so interesting to me. Cause I feel like, you know, artists, when we retire, like we know what we're going to be doing, right? Like we're like, we got a backlog of stuff we're going to be doing. Mm -hmm. Like, I just don't feel like I'm ever going to run out of this stuff. It's just constantly coming to me. So I, I try to write it all down. And then what I have time to kind of experiment with, I will, but I'm pretty backlogged right now. I, I have this like journal and I know that there's like these things that I want to get done. I think it's going to take me two years to get to them. But. <laughs> are you visualizing these in any ways too, or are you just writing about them? Cause I, again, I, considering like digital tools, I would imagine that could be something, but I don't know if that's something that you're into. No, I, I just think about them. I imagine them and then I sketch them out and then I draw notes to myself and then the notes bring me back to the idea, but it's all visual. It's all visual. I was going to say, it's interesting then too, because then, you know, you, you have that date that pops up and it's like, okay, I'm going to bring all of this. And then I would imagine then it's, it's playtime to kind of see how that interacts with that new space that you're in, you know, given however long that you're, you're there to work in it, if it's a week or two weeks or whatnot. Yes. That's always so exciting and so stressful. Like <laughs> at that point, I'm like not sleeping, I'm not eating. I'm like, just so into the moment, like where I'm just, yeah, it's kind of the reality. It, it feels like studio time, you know, when you go in and you have that flow and like everything kind of stops. I feel like that when I'm installing shows, it's a way more stressful, concentrated time because it's like, how do I figure this out? It's all problem solving and how does this all work and how do I get it up there and, and who can help me? And because, you know, it's all deadline driven. Well, and that's something interesting, too. You were talking earlier about helping your dad when you're a kid, you know, pull prints. So that collaborative nature is something that's obviously really interesting, too, because you have to have other people to help you with all of this. You'd, you'd run out of time. <laughs> exactly. Like, I cannot. There's no way I can do it by myself. I tried once. I had a show in Santa Fe <laughs> myself, and I gave myself a fever. It was bad. It was <laughs> 
I thought, oh, I can do that. It's a very small space. I can do this. And it was so hard. <laughs> yeah, I can't do it by myself. I don't know. After that, I was like, what was I thinking? But uh, yeah, I am completely dependent on other people. And, and also, I just love when other people make a suggestion too. You know, somebody will see something or say, well, what if you did this? I'm like, ah, yes, let's do it. Right, right. Coming at it from a way that I just can't see because I'm just so ensconced in it. Like, I, I just can't see out of it. So that's also really helpful when I'm installing shows and, you know, curators and people who, who do that stuff, they always have such fantastic ideas. And like in, in Colorado, I'm just laughing because the way that I had them install these things, uh, anyways, they suggested a whole different way to do it. That is immensely easier. You had to drill in and, and do that cut off like hours and hours. So, you know, things like that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> are really helpful because I'm not so practical in a lot of ways. I just want these things to happen. And I'm not really sure how I'm going to get them to happen. <laughs> so is there something that you're working towards now that's coming up? Yeah, there's um, a show in Chile that I'm working on with three other women. And that's where the cast glass work will, will coincide. And then there's the, the exhibition beacon that I'm trying to develop more with the projection mapping with plexiglass actually hanging in the room. So you're walking through it instead of it just being on the walls. I'm trying to kind of cut that space a little bit differently now and uh, work more with the colored light. So, so that's what I'm working towards. And I just found out this week actually that it's going to be pushed back a year. And I, I was so sad when I saw that email, but I think it's great because it's going to give me a year to really flush this idea out. I think I was, it was too ambitious of an idea anyway. So um, <laughs> another year anyways. Well, and it gives you a lot more time to work. And I guess to think about it in that nature, where is the best place for people to kind of see the, the day to day? Is it Instagram? Yeah, Instagram. I try to be consistent because I so love to see other people in their studios doing what they're doing. So Instagram is great at Isadora Stowe. And on my website, isadorastowe.com is where I, I post all of my different series of work on there as well. I really appreciate you taking the time today. It was great to talk to you all about your work and so happy that you applied to the pro competition in 2020 that Liz picked out your work. And, you know, it's just an honor to have you on here. So, so thanks so much for your time. Thank you. This was an honor to get to talk about my work and get to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thanks once again to Isadora for joining me. You can check out her work at IsadoraStowe.com. And it's very exciting. She recently received the Edwina and Charles Milner Women in the Arts Award to present her solo exhibition, Beacon, at Western New Mexico University. And that's slated for January and February of 2022. Be sure to follow her on Instagram at Isadora Stowe so that you don't miss it and you can see what's going on in the studio. If you're a new listener, head on over to studiobreak.com and check out some of the interviews that you might have missed out on. Each of those posts have images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites, and of course, you can listen right on studiobreak.com or click those links and subscribe to the podcast so you've always got something to keep your mind going while you're working away in the studio. Of course, if you like this podcast, please help spread the word via social media. And of course, say hello on social media. You can find us on Facebook. So like our page there. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break. And of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. Music for today's podcast, once again, is Remedial Indie Band, which features Ben Cohan on drums. Brett Beery on bass and myself on guitar. It's kind of a new project that we've been having a lot of fun with, so hope that you enjoy that. We're actually exiting today's podcast with a new song, so that's very exciting for us. Ben is also a painter. You can find him on Instagram at mbencohanstudio, and you can follow Brett at Brett Beery on Instagram. He has an album at bbeery.bandcap.com. 
If you want to see some of my paintings, my work, head on over to davidlinaway.com. And, of course, you can find me, follow me on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram at David Linaway. And once again, it's great hearing from listeners. So if you enjoy the podcast, please say hello there. Hope that you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. I hope that your studio practice is flourishing and growing. We'll talk to you real soon.